Our sermon text reading comes from Psalm 2. Please read along with me. Oh, silently. Um, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. I learned this from a book titled Catch the Vision 2000. It was in the 1930s as the Japanese invaded Korea that many Koreans were forced to flee their homeland and to settle into Soviet Russia. They were forced to flee to a town called Vladivostok. But as the Soviet Union then began to grow in power later in the 30s and then in the 40s, Joseph Stalin was turning Vladivostok into a manufacturing center of Soviet weapons. And because this was going to be you know, the heart of the Soviet empire, he didn't want any outsiders around to see their military secrets. And so he moved these Koreans for a second time to the city of Tashkent, which was a Uzbek Muslim stronghold. He just, he just wanted to get rid of these people. But the city was entirely Muslim. Now this is a, a clear tragedy for the Koreans. I don't want to downplay that at all. You have two very wicked governments that are conspiring together to force these innocent people to leave their homes. And so you can imagine the sort of tears and pain and sorrow that these Koreans were feeling. And yet, while these two governments were plotting for evil, God was at work and was about to do something even better. You see, for all of Joseph Stalin's planning, he did not realize that many of these Koreans were Christians. The Uzbek Muslims had been entirely against the West and all forms of Western Christianity. And so whenever missionaries from England or the United States had tried to engage them, it never went very far. But these Korean Christians were not from the West. And so as they settled into the town of Tashkent, they were welcomed him very warmly by these Uzbekian Muslims. And these Koreans began to share their faith. And many of these Uzbekian Muslims started to become Christians. It got to the point that in the very heart of the Soviet empire, there was actually open air preaching revival services involving these Koreans and now these new Uzbekian Christians. So you might ask, well, who orchestrated this event? You know, in the heart of the Soviet Union, a great 
Christian worship service. In one sense, you might say, well, it was Joseph Stalin. I mean, he, he was the one that moved these people around. He was the one that put the Christians and the Muslims together. But of course, in a much bigger sense, it was all God. Two terrible governments, Japan and the Soviet Union, Stalin, one of the most evil men in the history of the world. Governments and leaders conspiring together, trying to come up with a plan for world domination. And little did Stalin know as he was developing his plan that his plan was actually God's greater plan to undermine Joseph Stalin himself. That as Stalin was moving these refugee camps, God was orchestrating great gospel renewal. God's evil, or Stalin's, I need to make sure I say that right, or I will get some emails this week. Stalin's evil plan was actually God and his providence doing something much greater. That's Psalm 2, the psalm that we are looking at this morning. That is Psalm 2 in a nutshell, that while all the powers of this world are conspiring together, God is going to win. He will. God's going to win. And that is Psalm 2. Our outline for this morning is going to be very straightforward. We are just going to work through Psalm 2, sort of section by section, piece it together. Then at the very end, we're going to step back from the immediate focus of Psalm 2 and look at how Psalm 2 fits in the broader trajectory of the scriptures. But we're going to start by going section by section. To start with me in verses 1 and 2, you'll see... here at the beginning, that Psalm 2 begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What we know is that David is the author of this psalm. And so if you place that as giving us some context for what is going on, you can think of the different nations that were raging against David. Very early on, there were the Philistines and David had to go out and fight Goliath. Later in David's life, there were the Benjamites, these these enemies of him that are trying to undermine him. And if you look at the story of the Old Testament, there's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Moabites. There's a long list of nations that would love to see Israel fail. There's never been a time in the history of Israel when there is ultimate peace. There's always a world power. There's always a different government. There's always somebody else out there with wicked intentions that is trying to undo God. And so Psalm 2 opens with a very natural question. Why is there this rage? And what are we to do about it? It's a question that we are still asking today in 2022. This is not a new problem that we are facing today. This question of the raging nations and the people plotting in vain, this is not a new question. Same question that David was asking 3,000 years ago. It's the question that Christians were asking in the late 200s and early 300s as they were persecuted by Rome. It's the question that Christians were asking as they lived in the Soviet Union. It's the question that we are still asking today around the world. You know, one of the things that we can often do is we can just get sort of narrow-minded and we can exaggerate just how, how bad we have it today. Just, oh, woe, woe is us. And nobody's ever had this bad in the government. And, you know, where, where is... First off, that's just historically really naive. No matter what side of the aisle you are on, your political opponent today is not nearly as bad as what a number of Christians have had to face in previous generations. But just even more importantly, this question of just raging nations, people plotting in vain, it's not a uniquely American problem. 
This has been a problem that every generation throughout the history of the world has had to wrestle with. This is a universal human problem because our world is cursed. There are going to be bad people out there that are plotting against God. That's verses one and two. So in light of this, this rage of the nations and the people plotting in vain, we see in verses four and five that God needs to respond to these various governing leaders. So in light of the raging nations, we see in verses four and five that God is going to respond in two different ways. The first way that God is going to respond is by laughing at them. See, God laughs. He's not laughing because this is a joke. He's not laughing because this is a, you know, a good practical joke and the warring nations are just real jokesters and real comedians. God is laughing at how pitiful their attempts are. I think I've shared this before, but when, when I was growing up, my brothers and I, we had an ant farm. An ant farm was uh, this, this real thin tank. I think I got it for a birthday or Christmas present. It was this thin tank with two pieces of plastic that were clear. You would, you would fill it up with sand and then you would send away and in the mail you got a test tube of ants. And so you would dump the ants into your ant farm and you could watch you know, the little ants go about their, their ant life and they would build their tunnels and little ant families and little ant babies and all sorts of things. And I, I, I had issues as a child, so feel free to judge me. But what I loved to do is I would pick up the tank and I would find that little ant queen and look her into her little buggy antenna eyes and then I would get the tank and I just would shake it all up and just destroy you know, the ant farms and all, the, all their tunnels are collapsed. And I, I, have, I have issues, feel free to judge me. And, and God is, is not like that. God's not vindictive, he's not rash. He just doesn't mess people's lives up just for the sake of it. But, but still, th- th- there is a lesson there that I am so much greater than these ants. And whenever, the, I mean, imagine the, the, the queen ant, you know, shaking her little fist at me like, how dare you do that? You know, with her little buggy eyes staring at me, I would laugh. Who are you, little ant? This isn't your world, you act all tough, you act as though your word is infallible, you act as though you are running your little ant world. No, actually, I am the owner of this world. I could laugh at that queen ant. Or think of the college football season coming up. It's starting to feel like fall out this morning. And you think of these uh, early in the year games. So think of the University of Alabama football program. These are the best of the best. I mean, just they win national championships every other year. They are three deep with NFL players. And usually one of the first games of the year is they're playing some school I've, I've never heard of, a school like the satellite campus of Southwest New Mexico State Community College. I mean, just kind of like, wow, who? Who are these people? These guys run out into the field. And they all look like me. So you think, ooh, these guys are gonna have a rough, rough day. They're not strong, they're not tall, they're not fast. They look like a pastor. But these guys try, you know, Southwest New Mexico State Community College. They, they try hard. They might even get a first down. But the University of Alabama, they, they're not threatened. They're confident. They know they're gonna win 70 to nothing. And so they sit on their sidelines and they laugh at their attempts. That, that's God. God is so set in himself. He, he's so confident of his plan. He is so secure. He is so free of threats 
that whenever there is anyone on this earth that shakes a fist at God and says, God, I know better than you, God laughs. See, the laughter here is not comedy, but the laughter shows the disproportionate amount of power from God with the governing leaders of this world. The scales are so tilted in God's favor that he can sit in the heavens and laugh at whatever the governing leaders of this world are doing. And then in verse five, we see that after he laughs, he now has a plan. He has a plan for how he is going to respond. He is going to speak first in anger, and then second, he has a plan. Takes us to verse six. We see that the plan that God has as a way of counteracting the wickedness of this world is God is going to raise up his own anointed king, his anointed one. There's going to be a man that as a king will be installed as a way of counteracting and defeating the wickedness of this world. So the lesson here is that in the midst of this chaotic, raging world, look for a man, a man who will be the appointed one sent from God. This is where J.R.R. Tolkien gets the idea of the installation of a man as the king to usher in an age of peace. This is the return of the king. And the king that God has is going to be placed on the holy hill, and the king that God has in mind is King David. So this is what we call a royal psalm. Our best guess is that this is the psalm that was sung as David was installed as the king of Israel. So there's crowds, there's some fanfare, there's some expectation. And in the midst of that great celebratory moment, Psalm 2 was sung. So the world is chaotic and there's Philistines and there's Saul and there's this spiraling mess. That's the context. What's the hope that King David, anointed by God, sent from God, that this man who is able with just one stone to take down the giant Goliath, that David, the shepherd boy who has a heart for God, is now going to lead with righteousness and justice. He's going to lead with equity and fairness. He's going to build the morality of the kingdom upon the law of God. David is now here and he is going to usher in an age of God. Takes us to verse eight. Says that through David, who is this anointed king, the nations are going to be brought in. That the ends of the earth, the heritage is going to be brought to God. You see in verse nine, there's a warning that all the leaders who stand opposed to David will be smashed like a clay pot being struck by an iron rod. And so in light of all this, Hail to King David, the great king, the king that the people had wanted for so long. Hail to King David. Then in verse 10, there's a warning to all the other kings and the neighboring nations. A warning, a word from God. Listen up. You think you are winning. You think your attempts will go well, but be warned because God's man, David the king, is here. Therefore, other leaders, repent. Turn from your evil ways. Turn to God and kiss the king. Bow down and listen to him because this king is good and fair, but he is also righteous and just. 
meaning any attempts at ungodliness will not go well for you. So you can imagine the scene taking place as David is being installed as the king. There's, there's a lot of expectation here. Now you, when, you know, whenever you go to a, a celebration like this, there's often a lot of statements and songs that are very over the top, overly optimistic. But, but Psalm 2 is even far beyond normal optimism spoken at the installation of a governor. You know, when President Joe Biden was inaugurated, nobody thought that through Joe Biden, the very ends of the earth are going to be brought to God. I and mean, that's just, that's far beyond what we expect of our leaders. But David's a different kind of leader. He's not just a president. He's not just a governor. He is the appointed one of God. He is the king that the people so desperately wanted and needed. He is the anointed one. So the expectation is that beginning with David as this anointed one, Israel is going to be brought to a real high point where the reign and rule of God will be established through David and then through all the following generations, through all his descendants, and that Israel would be a city on a hill. Now, I guess, of course, in in, in some ways, David was able to accomplish many of these things. Israel was, was brought to a high point. Many of the enemies were defeated. There was a time of peace and prosperity. David was the one who started the building of the temple, but it was really Solomon, his son, who did the lion's share of the work and finished it. Israel was a city on a hill that other nations would come and see. It was a great reign far above any other reign in the history of Israel. And yet, we need to also ask, Did everything that Psalm 2 promised actually come to fruition? So we heard a few weeks ago from Demiron in Psalm 51 that David, while he was God's anointed man, he was also a man just like us, meaning that he fell into sin, he slept with Bathsheba, and they came up with a, a plan to have her husband murdered. And Israel would reach a high point under David, but never really moved beyond the nation of Israel. There were no other nations, let alone the very ends of the earth that were brought to God through David. Each generation of David's descendants would get farther and farther from God, so far that eventually the nation of Israel would split into two. And eventually the different kingdoms would actually be sent into exile. So for all the pomp and pageantry of Psalm 2, as it was first sung for David, you would think by the end of the Old Testament, that's a massive disappointment. That Psalm 2 felt a little bit like a campaign speech. We're coming up here in Michigan on a an election season where we're going to vote in our new governor this November. And so Starting very soon, you're going to hear all sorts of speeches. You know, if you elect me as governor, I'm going to fix the roads and solve crime and, you know, quadruple Michigan's economy and, you know, all sorts of things, and people will buy into it. And then two years later, you realize, yeah, most of that was just campaign speech. That was, that was overly optimistic, under-delivered, and after... David's reign and after the conclusion of the Old Testament, many people would have looked at Psalm 2 and said, yeah, this feels a little bit like a campaign speech, over-promised, under 
delivered. But there's a lot more to be said about this psalm. And so at this point, we're going to step out of the immediate focus, and we're going to set Psalm 2 in the broader story of the Scriptures. And so I would invite you to take out your phone right now, or if you want, there's a Bible in front of you. There are blue pew Bibles, and I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. Acts chapter 4, 24 through 28. If you are going to use a pew Bible, it is found on page 912. The context here in Acts chapter 4 is that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are upset because of the preaching of Peter and John. So the people are very upset. Peter and John have been brought and now they have been released. And this is where the story picks up starting in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice starting in verse 26, these early Christians are going to quote Psalm 2. And listen to how they apply Psalm 2 to their context. Why did the Gentiles, that is, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here, now we're talking about this anointed king. But notice in verse 27, who the real anointed king is. Verse 27, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who is the anointed one here in the book of Acts? As they are quoting Psalm 2, the anointed one in their understanding is not ultimately King David, but King Jesus. And who are the plotting enemies? It's not the Philistines or Goliath. No, it is Herod and Pilate. And if you were to turn to Acts chapter 13 or Hebrews chapter 1, you would see similar quotations of Psalm 2 that are in reference to Jesus Christ. So you, you might ask me, well, Pastor, now, now I'm really confused. Is, is Psalm 2, is it about King David or is it about King Jesus? And the answer, and this is how biblical prophecy works, is you would say, yes to both. It is about David, but it is ultimately about Jesus. That where David failed, Jesus will succeed. That where David fell into sin, Jesus will lead into righteousness. That one day David would die, but Jesus will reign forever. That Jesus is the new and better David in every single sense. That Jesus is the true son, the truly begotten one of God, and that through his inauguration as the king, the very ends of the earth will be brought him. Therefore kiss this man, lest you be dashed to pieces. So we could just stop there and say, okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But but I want want us to go 
even deeper, because there's actually a lot more here about how the reign and rule of God is going to be brought into this world through Jesus than you might think. And so the New Testament, the gospel, is the commentary for how you are to read the Old Testament. John Piper says that the cross casts a shadow over every page of the Bible, including the Old Testament. So let's do that now. Let's start with the cross. Let's start with what we see in Acts chapter 4, and now read that description back into Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 began, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Read Acts 4 into that, and we see that that is in reference to the angry mob yelling to have Jesus killed. And so this crowd is yelling out as Pilate gives them a decision, crowd, who do you want to have crucified? Is it Barabbas or is it Jesus? And the crowd in their rage, instead of letting Jesus go free, they wanted Barabbas, even though he was a true criminal, actually guilty for his crime. They said, release that man and have Jesus who was not just innocent of a specific crime, but was the only truly innocent man. This raging crowd wants Jesus crucified. And the kings and the rulers are rubbing their hands together and they are plotting a plan. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, they are the religious leaders. You have Herod, you have Pontius Pilate, they are the governing leaders, these four parties did not like each other. They never worked together before. In fact, they actually despised one another, but they have this one great enemy, which is Jesus. And so they come up with a plan to have Jesus sentenced to death, a plan to have this anointed man tried and killed, a plan to have the messenger of God, the only truly begotten son of God, forever removed. They were plotting against Jesus. And as they witnessed Jesus sitting through these trials, we see that Jesus was keeping his mouth shut. Why does Jesus keep his mouth shut as the king that has all the power that we see in Psalm 2? Everything about the power of Psalm 2, Jesus has. He could have started smashing with rods of iron and dashing to pieces like pots of clay. But Jesus kept his mouth shut. Why? Because of Acts 4.28. Look at it with me. That the plan of these governing leaders was God's predestined plan for victory. Jesus knew how the kingdom was going to be brought into this world as the king. Therefore, he kept his mouth shut, knowing that the best attempts of the world to silence God is actually God's path for bringing more of his kingdom into this world. And so as the crowds cheered to have Jesus killed, and as Jesus was beaten and bloodied, and as a crown of thorns was shoved into his skull, and as nails pierced his skin and blood began to flow, and as each breath got slower and slower and slower, you had these governing leaders in their hubris thinking, we got it. We got this man right where we want him. 
And then with the final breath, Jesus the anointed would bow his head, give up his spirit, his body as a dead man was laid in a grave. And you have Herod, Pilate, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the raging crowd. And they all thought, we did it. We defeated this man. The reign of God is done. The reign of this anointed man has been defeated. The rage of the nations is complete. Jesus is dead. The anointed one has been removed. God has been defeated. In that moment, as these leaders are popping off in celebration, what Psalm 2 teaches us is that at the crucifixion, God is in heaven laughing at their meager attempts because their plan to silence God was actually the path for the inauguration of King Jesus. That at the death of Christ, God's plan to defeat his enemies was being set into motion. Not just the defeat of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the defeat of the greater enemy of sin, the greater enemy of our shame, the greater enemy of death itself. And then as these leaders were celebrating that they defeated Jesus, the more they celebrated, the more they tightened the noose around their very own neck. That like Joseph Stalin, whose very best plans were actually God's plan to bring about revival, so we see here that the plans of these raging nations was God's plan for the gospel itself. That through his death, a new king was going to be coronated. And that as Jesus would later ascend into heaven, where he now reigns from the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, through the presence of the Son here on earth in the name of the Father, Jesus, the unshakable king that has conquered sin and death, through the presence of the Spirit, he has now started a movement of the kingdom the work of the church that is as unshakable as the unshakability of Jesus Christ himself. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain, but Jesus has been raised and Jesus is now sitting on his throne. In light of all that, I have two quick takeaways for you this morning. From Psalm 2, but especially with a New Testament gospel lens. Take, take away number one. First off, I, I, I understand that the news is, is always bad. You, you turn on CNN or Fox or whatever your news station is, it, it is always bad. All we hear are terrible things. Sometimes just turn off and pray. For your, for your mental sanity, just step away. But the sad truth is that until Jesus returns, the news is going to usually be bad. Now, this, this doesn't mean that, that all politicians are bad. Politics, government, it is amoral. It's not inherently bad. It's actually designed by God. As the church, we want some of our, our very best people to go into politics. We ought to celebrate politicians that are doing good things, and we ought to be thankful even for common grace that is given to non-believing politicians that sometimes they might make good decisions. But, but even still, with all that being true, 
the general posture of the world is them shaking their fist at God, them saying, I want to do it my way, not God's way. It was true in the period of David, it was true in the period of Jesus, it was true for Rome, it was true in the Soviet Union, it's true for us today. So with all that being said, it's going to be bad, it's not ultimately going to get any better until Jesus returns. Let me just encourage you, especially again with an election season coming up, take a deep breath, pray, it's going to be okay. God's still reigning. Your your, your person loses this upcoming November. (laughs) It'll be okay. God's still reigning. You know, coming off of the year 2020, just feel like everyone's running around with in a panic. You know, like chickens with our our heads cut off. Oh, I mean, what's going to happen? Where's God? Settle down. If, If if God can use Joseph Stalin to bring about spiritual revival in the center of the Soviet Union. God can use Trump or Biden or Duggan or Wimmer, whoever it is, it'll be okay. God's still reigning. Take a deep breath, don't panic, trust God. Think about this, think of all the terrible governments throughout human history that have come and gone. They're they're a dime a dozen. These men and women that rise up, they die, they're forgotten about. What is the only institution throughout human history that has lasted? It is the nation of the church. And why is that? You know, Soviet Union, communism, Rome, I mean, whatever, they all fall. Why is it that the church is the one nation, the institution that has lasted? Because we are the only ones that have an eternal king. So yes, the nations are raging, the people are plotting against God. Deep breath. I'm on the winning team. I play for the University of Alabama. I'm not worried about Southwest New Mexico State Community College. I'm just not worried about that because I'm on the right team. Deep breath. Takeaway number two. Notice how the reign of the true king comes into existence. The inauguration of King Jesus is not through political strength, but it's actually through death. At the very first singing of this psalm, in the day of David, the expectation was that David's victory would be through military strength. So David needed to assemble the right men, he needed to to buy the best horses, get the best weapons. And then, with God's help, he would go fight the warring nations. The expectation was that David's victory would be accomplished through brute strength and power. And yet, with the gospel being the filter for how we read Psalm 2, what we see is that the true victory is not through power, but through suffering and death that death actually paves the way for resurrection. It is God's power through weakness. You know, our our first instinct, whenever it feels as though mobs are assembling to take down the church or take down Jesus, our first instinct is always, we gotta assemble our people, we gotta fight power with power. Our first instinct is to have a King David approach. But it might just be that when the opposing powers begin to rise, the means 
For the path that the church needs to walk through for victory is not going to be through power or politics or strength, but through death and suffering. The opening story of the Koreans and the Soviet Union, there's nothing glamorous about this story. It was through their suffering that God was able to win. It was through their suffering that Stalin was plotting, but Stalin would actually be defeated. It was through the suffering of Christ that as the crowds raged and these governing leaders were plotting against him, it was through the suffering and death of Christ that Christ would win. So whatever hardships, whatever ways that you feel the rage of the world against you as an individual or against the work of the church around the world, it might just be that that rage is going to provide a path for suffering and death, and it is through that path that God's victory will be accomplished. You know, it often feels like loss is gain, that while there are some in the church that are saying the church in the West is about to experience a very difficult decade or two, it might just be that in God's wisdom, that's what he wants. He wants a hard decade so that power might be made perfect in weakness. So those are the two quick ways. First, take a deep breath. God's still in control, don't panic. Second takeaway, God brings the victory of Jesus through his suffering and death. Perhaps that is something for us as well. But here is the main point for Psalm chapter two. Remember the king. Remember the king. As Psalm 2 was first sung as David began his earthly rule, so now should Psalm 2 be sung on our lips to King Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the begotten Son of God, the eternal King, the Lamb that was slain, Jesus the King, who now reigns on earth from his heavenly throne. Kiss this Son, kiss this King, and may his rule and reign on earth be established. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this psalm that so clearly points us to your son, Jesus Christ, the true king, the only one sent by you, the anointed son of God. Oh, Jesus, we thank that you are reigning. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that while often many people have plans to undermine you and your sovereign plan, those plans are for our good, for the good of the church, for the glory of your son. Father, we ask now that you give us greater confidence in your son's rule. In Jesus' name, amen.